This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I would like to thank Academic Senate Chair Joel Aberbach and Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost uh, Scott Wall for these very kind uh, words of introduction and to express my appreciation for the presence of, of the current Dean of Humanities, David Skalberg, and the former Dean of Humanities, Herbert Morris, who welcomed me to UCLA 25 years ago. I would also like to thank all the members of the UCLA community and other friends here today. It is a humbling honor for me to deliver this lecture because I've had strong ties to the University of California for most of my life. My mother worked, as, worked for UCSD's medical school when I was a teenager in the 1970s. I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley from 76 to 1980. My sister graduated from UC Santa Barbara in 1982. I was offered a position at, at, at UCLA in 1987. I came here as a visiting professor in 1989. And after conversations with Professor Shirley Aurora from Spanish and Portuguese and with Professor Herbert Morris, a dean who could recite full poems by Pablo Neruda in Spanish by heart, I joined the UCLA faculty in 1991. Every day I come on campus I, I, or step into one of our classrooms, I feel a sense of gratitude for the privilege of being a member of this academic community. And giving this lecture is therefore an opportunity to express uh, my gratitude and appreciation to the many people here who have enriched my life, particularly my colleagues, students, and staff in the departments uh, mentioned by um, Scott Wall. Uh, I would like to, sp to pay a special uh, homage to the late Carol B. Johnson, he was the first Hispanist who delivered the faculty research lecture almost exactly 10 years ago, in April 2005, two years before his unexpected and untimely passing. Carol Johnson was a specialist in the literature of the Spanish Golden Age, and he made major contributions to our understanding of Cervantes. In the 98th faculty research lecture, he discussed the Cave of Montesinos episode, one of the most challenging ones in Don Quixote, because Cervantes makes it a point to make it impossible for his readers to determine if Don Quixote's experience in this cave was dreamed or made up, whether it was staged by others, or whether it is a daring moment in the novel in which Cervantes is deliberately blurring the lines between fiction and reality, not for his character, but for us, the readers. What is not ambiguous about the episode, it is Don Quixote reports that he met Dulcinea, who has been a product of his, of his imagination, and that she asks him for a small amount of money. The request was unsettling for Don Quixote, because no knight in shining armor had ever been asked for money by any damsel in distress. And the humiliation increases when he reaches into his pockets and cannot come up with a full amount. In his lecture, Carol Johnson argued that with the introduction of monetary considerations 
into what used to be the idealized world of novels of chivalry, Cervantes is challenging his readers to move away from a literature of escapism to a literature that owns up to the painful material concerns of everyday life. It is fitting that the 98th as a first research lecture uh, of this kind given by a UCLA professor of Spanish featured the seminal writer of narrative fiction in the Spanish language. And 10 years later, I would like to feature Jorge Luis Borges, arguably the most dazzling writer of narrative fiction in the Spanish language since Cervantes. Indeed, the two authors intersect because Borges wrote many essays, poems, and stories about Cervantes, and they even overlap because one of Borges' most famous characters, Pierre Menard, wrote as himself, not copying, a few pages that happened to coincide with a few pages from Don Quixote. Borges is best known as a spellbinding fabulist whose literary works often require the creative complicity of his readers, not merely their suspension of disbelief, to produce a sense that a window has been opened onto singular worlds of fiction with a logic of their own. He disconcerts and beguiles with the same conceits. His preposterous situations and impossible objects have the air of the credible, and his characters, mostly unendearing and sometimes endowed with extraordinary attributes, are intriguing when not compelling. Borges is widely acknowledged as the inventor of a new literary genre that blurs the boundaries between fiction and the essay, popular and high culture, philosophy and literature, and he is also credited with the fusion of detective and fantastic literature, two genres that used to be kept at a distance. These innovations had a transforming effect on Latin American literature, and they even have an impact on popular culture. Birdman, the last Academy Award-winning uh, film, pays homage to Borges with a cameo appearance of Labyrinth, his most popular anthology you know, in this <laughs> in this conversation between Michael Keaton and, and, and Norton. Borges has inspired professional philosophers from both the continental and analytic traditions. He has also struck a chord with writers and artists, and especially in the area of digital media. The LA Times just last week called Borges an internet star and published an article about a new website inspired by a Borges story, a virtual library intending to exhaust all possible letter combinations of the alphabet in uniform volumes. Yeah. A recent feature of the culture section of the BBC World News about two months ago examines Borges' growing, growing legacy. War is not a topic that has captured the attention of, of, of literary critics of Borges, or at least not that much. But it has been a central concern for Borges since the beginning of his literary career, as he would recall in most of his autobiographical writings. 
Borges spent five years in Geneva as a teenager with his Argentine family from 1914 to 1919, a period of time that corresponds more or less to the war years. The trip was originally intended to be an extended tour of Europe. Borges' father wanted to take his family before losing his sight from the exact same congenital disease Borges was also to suffer as an adult. But the First World War broke out two months into their trip, and the family remained in neutral Switzerland for its duration, because it was not safe to travel to Europe. As Emir Rodriguez Monegal indicated in a book that UCLA professor Lucia Ray translated into Italian, the family was, quote, comfortably trapped in Switzerland, end of quote. Of course, with the Western Front nearby and home in Buenos Aires far away. Borges enrolled in a French high school where he flunked all his French language classes. But he did well in Latin. He picked up German in order to discuss German literature and philosophy with his best friends, two Jewish kids from Polish families who felt as alienated from the mainstream of the school as was the young Borges, and they kept a friendship until their old age. One of Borges' greatest discoveries in Geneva was the poetry of Walt Whitman, whom he read in German as a German poet. This is not as strange as it seems because Whitman's war poetry was very important to German expressionist poets who were writing poetry about the First World War. Uh, and, and also, actually, because Whitman in Germany had been considered a war poet for at least 60 years. Whitman himself was aware of this and did not mind. When Ferdinand Freilichraff, a poet in his own right, who was published and perhaps translated by Emerson himself, published a selection from Drum Taps in 1868, uh, Whitman wrote immediately a letter to one of his best friends saying, quote, abroad my book and myself have become quite dazzling. Freilichrax translates me and he even commends me, end of quote. As Walter Grutzweig pointed out, several other translators of Whitman in the 19th century also restricted themselves just to the war poems. Borges read Whitman in Johannes Schlaff's translation, which was actually read by many others, including Kafka, you know, and actually Schoenberg, uh, the songs of Whitman that Schoenberg transposed to music in his early period were also this translation, you know, uh, incidentally, since we're in this hall. Uh, and Schoenberg was also just mentioned. And actually, this translation is still widely available in Germany in the popular Reclam editions. Schlaff translated a wide selection of Whitman's poetry into German, but still gave pride of place to the war poems. In his book on Whitman, he singles out when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed as Whitman's greatest poem and one of the greatest poems in world literature according to Goethe's criteria. So, I mean, it, it is, of course, uh, indicative that the poem includes lines like the ones that you're seeing, which had such an impact on German poets on the First World War. 
Um, of course, German poets also particularly uh, quoted poems like Reconciliation, which you see here. Borges was the first translator of German expressionist poetry into Spanish. He wrote many articles on the topic. He exchanged letters with several of the great German expressionist poets he translated, and he would always make the point, quote, that the main inspiration of expressionism is Walt Whitman. In his translations of German expressionist poetry, but also in his own early poetry, Borges gave pride of place to a jagged kind of poem uh, from a formal point of view, one that responded to situations of extreme stress and anxiety in the light of human devastation. In his prologue to one of his anthologies, Borges made the subtle point, quote, the war did not create German expressionism. The war justified it, end of quote. One of Borges' first poems about the Great War with the predictable title, Trenches, underscores the mental breakdown of soldiers, quote, whose souls are tinged with suicide and madness, wandering like hounds on the streets, speaking quietly with the heavenly bodies and quietly too with the dogs, end of quote. The most important lesson for Borges in his engagement with expressionism uh, is the connection between intense emotions and literary expression, and this stress on emotional intensity remained in his most famous literary works. Borges considered the First World War to be senseless, like so many other people. And early on, he despised the nationalistic fervor that had fielded on all sides. He distanced himself from Nietzsche because German nationalists who drew on quotes from Nietzsche sometimes drew on quotes that were not always taken out of context. And he also despised French patriots who wanted to humiliate Germany or Germans after the war. This is why after the war, Borges continued to translate the poetry of pacifist uh, German poets, including Wilhelm Clem, which includes verses like, like this one. One of Borges' first published pieces of narrative fiction is called Parables. It includes two sections, one called The Fight, the other called Liberation. It is quite understandable why he did not want to include them in his complete works. But I mention them because they are war pieces and they are embryonic versions of plots he would return to over and over again for the rest of his literary career. The first is memory of hand-to-hand -hand combat in which the survivor's identity is indelibly confused with the identity of the man he killed and the second is about the lingering feeling of restlessness of survivors of captivity. On Borges' return to Argentina, he was very active in the literary scene. He wrote many poems informed by his expressionist aesthetic. They became more subdued, and his work as, but just as metaphysical. And his work as a literary journalist included review of many books that, as they were coming out, 
most of the books that are now considered to be the classics of a great war, including Henry Barbusa's Under Fire, Eric Maria Remarque's All Quiet on the Western Front, Ernst Jünger's War as Interior Experience. The World War I writer Borges most admired was Fritz von Unruh, uh, and actually he admired him before Unruh became a friend of Einstein. And he admired him as a professional soldier from a military family, quote, who had been hoping to find his personal justification in war, who wrote the most intense book that has been motivated by the experience in war, and who became one of the most courageous and outspoken opponents of Nazism. And this happened in a journal... Uh, uh, Unruh founded in 1932, which was forcibly closed when Hitler came to power in 1933. Borges was actively disliked by a significant element of Argentina's literary establishment, sympathetic to the rise of fascism in Italy and national socialism in Germany. Borges' admiration for writers like Fritz von Unruh and his interest in the kind of German literature that was censored or written out of literary histories in Nazi Germany because it was written by Jews, by writers in the opposition, or by writers considered decadent by literary critics had consequences in Argentina. Crisol, a prominent conservative journal in Buenos Aires, accused Borges, quote, of maliciously hiding his Jewish heritage, end of quote. Borges responded in Megafono, a liberal journal in which he laments with pointed irony that he does not have the Jewish, the Jewish ancestry the journal Crisold had accused him of hiding. Borges wrote many journalistic essays in which he deplored the rise of Nazism and continued to chronicle the deplorable consequences of Nazism in the literary production of German. The impact of the First World War and of the rise of fascist Nazi Germany, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, and their sympathies for these movements both in Europe and in Argentina occupied many of his essays. This is also the context, and it might be surprising to some, in which he wrote his signature tale Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, which was published in 1939, a few months before the outbreak of Second World War. Most critics who have written about this major story emphasize its literary and philosophical aspects, its exploration of the relativity of readings and interpretations, its blurring the lines between the essay and the short story, Many have wanted to see in it a postmodern treatise of sorts. Philosophers from the analytic tradition, including former UCLA professor Kit Fine, but also Saul Kripke, Nelson Goodman, David Lewis, just to name a few, have commented on this story to discuss possible world semantics, the nature of fiction, and whether the same linguistic or physical object can have different sets of properties. Literary theorists like Gerard Genet consider the story to be, quote, the greatest meditation 
on what it means to read literature, end of quote. In After Babel, a pioneering work in the field of translation studies, George Steiner calls it, quote, the most acute, most concentrated commentary anyone has offered on the business of translation, end of quote. And Harold Bloom considers it to be, quote, the work of a great theorist of poetic influence, end of quote. I could go on and on with appreciations of this kind. In the most quoted passage of this story, the narrator compares a passage from Cervantes' Don Quixote with a passage from Pierre Menard's Don Quixote. It is a revelation to compare Don Quixote with Cervantes. The latter, for example, wrote part one, chapter nine, Truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. Written in the 17th century, written by the late genius Cervantes, this enthusiasm is a mere rhetorical praise of history. Menard, on the other hand, writes, truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. History, the mother of truth, the idea is astounding. Menard does not define history as an inquiry into reality, but as, as its origin. One of the most important aspects of this passage is almost invariably misunderstood. When critics draw the wrong inference that the narrator of the story represents Borges' view, and I'm quoting a typical example, I could have quoted you 15 others, you know, in which they look at the narrator and they attribute everything the narrator says to Borges particularly the value judgment about which version is better than the other. What this critic and many others have missed in their analysis of the story is that the narrator is not Borges and does not represent Borges' views about his character in any way. Borges' own views about Pierre Menard, a view he repeated many times when he was asked about the story, is expressed in a tone that is measured, humbler, devoid of prejudice. So this is an example of one of many of Borges' own commentaries. Now, Pierre Menard does not want to encumber the world with any more books. And although his fate is to be a literary man, he's not out for fame. He's writing for himself, and he decides to do something very, very unobtrusive. He'll rewrite a book that is already there, and very much there, Don Quixote. The other point that all commentators of the story have missed, all of them, and this is very significant, is that the narrator of the story was inspired by none other than Erich Ludendorff, the supreme commander of the German armed forces during World War I, also the de facto dictator of his country, either by himself or at times with Paul Hindenburg during the war. Ludendorff was also Hitler's co-conspirator 
in the Beer Hall Putsch of 1923 to overthrow the German government in the name of the creation of a new German state whose citizenship would be based on race. He was also one of the, 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 one of the main theorists of total war. And in the 1930s, he, he, he wrote books and articles calling for the attack on civilian populations of Germany's enemies without declaring war. He was also the author and editor of racist books and journals. As historian Robert Asprey has written, Ludendorff's, quote, Ludendorff's vil villains were members of races and religions whose alleged plots were preventing Germany from realizing its divine mission in the world, end of quote. Ludendorff was obsessed with the promotion of circumcision among Gentiles, which he branded as a ploy by enemies of Germany to Judaize the Aryan population. When Borges was working on Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote, he published two articles about Ludendorff and one article about a book that devotes one chapter to Ludendorff. The book is The Total War. Which was, and this book, The Total War, which Borges reviewed, Ludendorff's book, which Borges reviewed, had been published in 1935. But Borges pointedly decided to review it in 1937 when the news of his funeral and Hitler's attendance to the same uh, was published in Argentina. In the book, Borges quotes Ludendorff's main thesis, quote, war is the highest expression of the will of the people. Therefore, politics, the new totalitarian politics, must subordinate itself to a totalitarian war, end of quote. Borges also quotes a thought by Ludendorff, quote, that the military leader must trace the direction of the politics of the nation. In this essay, Borges warns that the new German politics espoused by writers like Ludendorff, demanding a dictatorship, is cause for alarm given its uh, racist and bellicose uh, ideas. Borges also quotes Ludendorff's thesis that some cosmopolitan German literature should be banned. I mean, one of the leitmotifs of, of Ludendorff is that some, some German literature should be banned, including for Ludendorff, the works of Goethe, because openness to world literature would soften the resolve needed by German soldiers to confront Germans' future enemies. Borges ends his review essay on Ludendorff, on the on the war book, anticipating fears that in retrospect became true because he underscores, and I quote the end of Borges's review essay, the killings of millions of which Ludendorff would like to be the prophet, end of quote. Borges also reviewed a book by Lytle Hart in which the British war historian singles out Ludendorff's writings as reasons for Europe to be alarmed. Little Hart loses his measure toned in the rest of the book when he describes Ludendorff and he says, quote, 
Ludendorff is not troubled by historical facts when they present obstacles to his faith. And to promote his view of German unity, he offers the age-old prescription of suppressing anyone who expresses or even entertains contrary views, end of quote. A few months before Ludendorff's death, Borges had written another article, a review of Ludendorff's bi-monthly journal on the sacred source of German might, which had a print run of over 100 issues every two weeks, and included articles on current events, on philosophical ideas, on literature. All of, most of them included racist cartoons. And here is the quote from Borges' review. The first lines of Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, echo the language, the tone, the terms of Ludendorff. In fact, some of it is identical. The visible work left by this novelist is easily and briefly enumerated. Impardonable, therefore, are the omissions and additions perpetrated by Madame Henri Bachelier in a fallacious catalog which a certain daily whose Protestant tendency is no secret has had the inconsideration to inflict upon its deplorable readers, though these be few and Calvinist, if not Masonic and circumcised. Notice the rude, insulting tone of a racist, the dismissive, discounting, polemic nature of his prose, the accusatory language premised on a sense of racial superiority. Notice the attack on a newspaper with a religious tendency different than his, the attack on Freemasons. Notice his anti-Semitic assumptions, its diatribe against deplorable, circumcised readers which was, of course, one of Ludendorff's obsessions. The narrator defends his claims on the authority of the endorsement of an Italian countess who married a, a German millionaire from Pittsburgh, which for me evokes the significance of the steel industry during the German rearmament between the wars, but also the Nazi fascist alliance. His other source of support is a French royalist, which were the French people for whom Ludendorff expressed some measure of sympathy. I'm not arguing that the narrator of the story is identical to Ludendorff, but it was certainly inspired by Ludendorff, and in particular by Borges' writings on Ludendorff. He is certainly an aggressive polemicist whose racism and anti-Semitism go hand in hand with his admiration for aristocratic privileges and prerogatives, and his analysis of the text by Menard or Don Quixote is consistent with the despicable positions he openly expresses, including his dismissiveness of Cervantes as a superficial, unnecessary writer, and his, his praise for Pierre Menard as a neo-Nietzschean. Careful readers of the story who are also aware of Borges' interpretation of his character's writings as ambiguous rather than superior, should be able to notice that his nasty narrator dismisses Borges' view as the view of a Pierre Menard 
detractor. The story is set in the late 1930s. Uh, and this is, well, yeah, I, skipped, I skipped a long quote. The story is set in the 1930s after the death of Pierre Menard and the opinions of Menard's so-called detractors were expressed before his death. So this means that the narrator of the story has chosen Menard's death to monopolize his legacy. The narrator judged that the Nietzschean underpinnings of Menard's Don Quixote are irrefutable, he says. This interpretation is based on the notion that truth is the product of the will, something that happens in history, something to be created, rather than something that is discovered, ascertained, or determined by evidence. The Nietzschean interpretation is not irrefutable. It is simply plausible when, this, when a single text, the only text quoted in the story, is read out of context. Truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor of the present, and the future's counselor. But in context, all it takes to create a context is really to quote the full sentence. The irrefutable nature of the Nietzschean interpretation falls apart. There's a contradiction built in to the text between the narrator's claim that Pierre Menard's text is infinitely richer than Cervantes and his claim that Menard has enriched the art of reading by means, quote, of the deliberate anachronism and the erroneous attribution. The second claim is a more plausible description of the narrator's hermeneutic practice. In any event, the notion that truth is a creative act rather than something to be ascertained or determined was one of the points Ludendorff would make in his essays and books, arguments about creating truth for the German people as, when he, as where he argues for the German rebirth of the German spirit in ways that Borges refuted in his essays as in the example that you can see at the moment. One does not have to know that the narrator of Borges' story was inspired by Ludendorff to realize that he is racist, inconsistent, self-contradictory, or that his descriptions of Menard's project does not square with Menard's project. The narrator is misleading, and the way in which he is misleading gives credence to an article Borges wrote about ethics, which switches the stress of ethical interpretation on literary works from the literary works themselves to the ethical makeup of those who are undertaking the practice of interpretation. Pierre Menard's version of Don Quixote is not infinitely superior to Cervantes's, who is disparaged for being inferior, circumstantial, and cliched. Um, but in the context of the story, it helps us to understand that any work of literature is susceptible to many readings and to manipulation. In the context in which Borges wrote his story, Borges wanted to shift the focus from the condemnation of literary works, as was the practice in Germany at the moment, to the condemnation of those who manipulate their literary interpretations for the sake of nationalism, racism, or xenophobia.
only a few months after the publishing of Pierre Menard, author of Quixote, the Second World War broke out. And Borges immediately wrote essays expressing his condemnation of the Nazi war effort and against his fellow Argentines who supported the war. In an article published in 1939, immediately after the war began, he wrote about his fears that a German victory would, would include the unleashing of fascist tendencies, which he said were both present and latent in his own country. The first story he wrote after the war broke out is Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius, which many consider to be Borges's most complex, abstract, and hermetic short story. Few have noticed the extent to which it is a literary allegory of the rise of Nazism. The narrator and protagonist unearth an extravagant conspiracy involving many individuals who have been fashioning an alternative universe over several generations. The conspirators have produced an encyclopedia in which a universe called Tlon behaves according to the philosophical, uh, to certain philosophical premises of idealism. The story moves from the outlandish to the fantastic when the universe, down to its physical laws, begins to transform itself according to the design of the conspirators. In Tlon, Ukbar, Orbis Tertius, the creation of the encyclopedia has a direct bearing on the transformation of the universe. But the change also requires the willing participation of many individuals. And it is not a coincidence that the conspirators are racist, keen for the world to fit according to their preconceived ideas. And their desire to impose a particular philosophical worldview upon the universe can be read and should be read as an allegory of the imposition of racist worldviews such as the one that inspired the National Socialists. The encyclopedia that transforms the universe, the imposition of a universal order concocted by a handful of individuals and imposed, imposed upon others has dire consequences that Borges' narrator invites his readers to reconsider as a distressing allegory about totalitarianism. The narrator, initially amused and even fascinated by the attempt to imagine an alternative universe, is eventually horrified by the change that is taking place before his very eyes and is dismayed by the willingness, first of a few and eventually of many, to accept it as they are drawn into the whirlwind of events they might not control. And this analysis is not outside of the story, but in the story itself. In the story, with bitter, understated irony, the narrator explicitly compares the transformation of his universe to the rise of Nazism, anti-Semitism, and Stalinism. Ten years ago, any symmetry with a semblance of order, Stalinism, anti-Semitism, Nazism, was sufficient to entrance the minds of men. How could one do other than to submit oneself to Tlon, to the minute and vast evidence of an orderly planet, end of quote. 
the narrator's comment is consistent with Borges' fears expressed in his political essays of the 1940s that German fascism could triumph and create an unbearable historical transformation. Um, the other major story, actually, uh, uh, yeah, the other major story Borges wrote in this period is also one of his most famous ones, The Garden of Forking Paths. It is also a story that is intimately related to war. It is a story of a Chinese man who works in London as a spy for Germany during the First World War and who murders a man called Albert to accomplish a mission, which is to let his German spy chief know that the German artillery should bomb the city of Albert. To his dismay, he learns one hour before the murder that the man he needs to kill is a sinologist named Albert, who knows more about his own ancestors than he ever knew or expected to know. In the story's fantastic twist, Albert lets Yu Tsung know that one of his ancestors wrote a book that prefigures or perhaps predetermines the experiences they are now experiencing, as well as any number of other possible worlds. Even though he feels a sense of reverence and respect towards Albert, he commits the murder all the same. And his reason has to do with his obsession with race. Quote, I did not do it for Germany, no. I care nothing for a barbarous country of the kind. I did it because I felt the German spy chief held in scorn, held of those of my race, the innumerable ancestors who merge in me. I wanted to prove to him that a yellow man could save his armies, end of quote. Before I go on with my analysis of the story, I'd like to pay a 20-second homage to one of my teachers, Professor Luis Andres Murillo, the son of California farm workers who became one of the world's foremost authorities on Cervantes. When I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, I had the privilege of taking a tutorial with him on Don Quixote using his critical edition, and I also read his wonderful book on James Joyce and Borges called The Cyclical Night. Professor Murillo had a lucid moral compass, and his interpretation of this story is still the best one I've read, especially when he calls the murder, quote, a nihilistic act of violence narrated as a radical predicament, end of quote. Because Professor Murillo was unmasking the subterfuges of the protagonist's murderous acts. What I have to add to his analysis is a commentary to a question Professor Murillo um, raised, but no one has been able to resolve. Professor Murillo wonders whether the historical note with which the story begins is a deliberate misrepresentation of historical events because they do not correspond to the source that Borges writes. Within the world of the story, this note matters because it suggests that the Chinese spy's mission did not have any significant effect on war, on the war. That being said, the historical note, of course, does not correspond to the, the original source. 
The first thing to notice if you compare Borges' historical account quoting Lytle Hart with Lytle Hart's account in his own book is that we are discussing the beginning of the Battle of the Somme. And if you read Lytle Hart's account, it becomes clear that most of the elements in Borges' account are repeated with slight variations and for different purposes. And the main reason for this is because the historical world of Yu Tsung in the story is not that of First World War as it is registered in history, but a variation of First World War as it is prefigured in his ancestor's book. Anyone who reads the relevant sections of Lytle Heart with care, but actually anyone who knows anything about the Battle of the Somme would have picked up that on the fact that Borges' account of the historical events cannot correspond with the historical events, namely because all of the preparations for the Battle of the Somme were, as, as Lytle underscores, unconcealed. You know, and because they were unconcealed, there was no point in espionage in the context of, of the, the history. In the fictional world of the story, the murder of Albert does not help the spy's mission. In the historical record, the murder would have been even more senseless. And my teacher, Professor Murillo, is right in pointing to the nihilism that Borges underscores in a senseless act of violence inspired by nationalistic and racist prerogatives. In 1942, the the three stories I have been discussing uh, were put together in a book by Borges with three or four other stories, including the Library of Babel and the Lottery of Babylon. And by the way, the building of the old lottery in Buenos Aires was also the old library, National Library of Argentina. So this allowed Borges for many uh, puns as well as philosophical reflections. So the, the pri- he was nominated for this prize in 1942, and the prize was awarded to a minor writer whose nationalistic stories in which he expressed his love for the Argentine Pampa were praised. Borges' friends recalled that Borges was snubbed for his adherence to the Allies before the tide of the war turned against Nazi Germany. And this is borne out by a document of the jury which states that in the current historical situation, the national prize should not be awarded to a decadent writer with sympathies for English culture. This is the context in which Juan Perón made his entrance in Argentine political stage, and whether Borges was right or not in making a strong association between Peronism and Nazism at the time, he did. It is worth noting that when France was liberated in 1944, the Argentine government sent troops to repress the spontaneous demonstrations in Buenos Aires that were held to celebrate the liberation of Paris. In the aftermath of the war, and I'm coming up to my last story and the conclusion, following the Nuremberg trials, Borges wrote Deutsches Requiem, a story about the nefarious consequences of fascism and anti-Semitism even after Nazism was defeated, cautioning its readers that the end of the war did not mean 
the end of the legacy that produced the Holocaust. The protagonist of Borges' tale is an unrepentant Nazi war criminal, the sub-commander of the Tarnowitz concentration camp, who writes a text about his own life as he awaits his execution following the trial that condemned him for his role in the torture and murder of many Jews. Otto Dietrich Zulinde is proud of his father, Dietrich Zulinde, a hero of the siege of Namur in the First World War, a campaign actually led by Erich Ludendorff. And according to him, he joined the Nazi party in 1929, eager to engage in the war. But when he lost a leg, um, which was hard for him, uh, he agonized in the hospital, not because he feared death, but because it pained him not to participate in the invasion of Czechoslovakia. The story offers a window into the cogitations of a criminal who takes pride in the fact that he has lost all compassion for his fellow human beings in the name of a metaphysical approach to life that rationalizes injustice and murder. He is like the protagonist of the Garden of Forking Paths, a nihilist murderer, without the predicaments of his predecessor, or at least the story shows how he loses his compunctions. This is why the most chilling aspect of his confession is not his lack of remorse with respect to the crimes he openly committed, but his conviction that his worldview has triumphed and will prevail even though he's on the side who lost the war. In the most troubling moment of the narrative, Otto Surlinde says, dealing with uh, a Jewish man, an author, he at once, he, he, not only once, he continues to deeply admire on a literary point of view. He says, I was severe with him. I permitted neither my compassion nor his glory to make me relent. I had come to understand many years ago that everything in the world can be the seed of a possible hell. I decided to apply the principle to the disciplinary regime of the house and ellipses. Here the editor intervenes. It has been necessary to omit a few lines here. Borges here reaches one of the high points if not the high point of moral literature in 20th century Latin America with the footnote, when the fictional editorial voice intervenes to let the reader know he has excised the sections of the testimony where the Nazi criminal was about to describe how he claims he broke down the Jewish man for whom he had felt deep admiration. Borges's tale offers sobering insights about the criminal mind of the Nazi. But Borges is not willing to give voice to the criminal sense of pride for his criminal methods, nor is he prepared to humiliate the dignity of the victims by describing how their humanity was violated. The narrator, narrator uh, the, the intervention um, um, of, of Borges um, in, in, in the war is, is clear and uh, related to his uh, 
overall views about literature. Borges, um, Borges's narrator ends his uh, diatribe with the idea that, um, with an idea of, of, of un unrepentance. Um, I would like to uh, c conclude by discussing what happened, discussing Borges's um, final thoughts on the significance of his stories about the Second World War. Uh, Borges' Borges' tale, the um, Deutsches Requiem, is a cautionary, a cautionary tale about the survival of totalitarian impulses. And I would like to close with a commentary by Borges on his own writings about the relationship between literature and, the totali and totalitarianism. When he says, um, in particular, I don't consider myself to be a role model for anyone, and my political abilities leave much to be desired. But since 1939, I have made an effort not to write a single sentence to promote the inherent superiority of any national orig origin, language, religion, or blood ties. Given my lack of personal courage, I don't pretend to be a model for others to follow in these difficult times. But at least I'm doing what I can to make sure that what I write does not succumb to the toleration of anything that resembles Nazism. Borges' gift as a writer uh, or, or, or as a fabulist of fiction is not to cast history overboard with his fantastic tales or philosophical abstractions. He could draw on them to offer some insights and upper suits that mere realism might not be able to offer. There are no contradictions between Borges' approach to fantastic literature and meditations on some of the most urgent issues of his time. And there are lessons to be drawn from the mechanisms through which he tried to avoid the prejudices of nationalism, xenophobia, in the construction of literary worlds. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.